you're heading to the back, we're going to continue our series this morning entitled Make Disciples. And that's a look at the mission of Providence Community Church. And so you can turn with me to the book of Colossians. If you turn there, we're going to be starting in verse 21, reading to the end of the chapter there. So we'll be looking today at Colossians chapter 1, starting at verse 21 and heading on to the end of the chapter. Before we begin that, let's just start with a word of prayer. Lord, when we consider providence and we think about our life together and the things that we pursue and the things we prioritize, we want them to be guided by your word. We want them to be structured according to the things that you tell us should be our priorities. When we consider what we want to be about as your people here, we don't want to rest on man's wisdom. We don't want to set ourselves in a course that's not wise according to your revelation. And so Lord, I ask that you would guide us now in your word. Help us to see your intentions for us as your people here. Lord, help us to see your intentions to make us into a people that reflect the holiness and the glory of Jesus. And so we need your help for that, Lord, and we ask for it. And we ask filled with faith, knowing that you work and move through your word. So we do all this in your name, Jesus. Amen. Well, I can remember, and I don't know if it was the first time, but it was definitely one of the first times that I was given steak to eat for supper. Now, a lot of families, I don't know, maybe all families, usually don't give good meat to the youngest kids because you just get, it's kind of wasted on them. And so I remember the first time I was given a steak at dinner, and it was you know, supposed to be a big deal, and it was put in front of me, and so here I am cutting it, and I even got like the special knife to hold, which if you're a boy is like probably the coolest part. You've got the really big knife now like your dad has. And we're sitting there, and we're, we're cutting it, and I take the first piece, I put it in my mouth, you know, and it had been built up, you know, expectation. You're going to have steak tonight. You don't have to have hamburger, like, you're getting steak. And so I sat there, and I cut, cut the meat, and put it on my fork, put it in my mouth, and I started chewing, and I kept chewing, and I kept chewing, <laughs> and, I kept, and I just, I could not get through the thing. I, kept, I was just chewing and chewing, and finally my mom, and this is after a couple of minutes, my mom looked over at me and just is everything okay? And I <laughs> reached in my mouth <laughs> and I pulled out the piece of steak. And she, you know, she's very offended. How oh, you can't do it at the table, manners and everything. And then she realized my first bite of steak ever had been a big chunk of gristle. <laughs> and so, you know, everyone's talking about steak and how wonderful it is. And now I finally get to try some. And I cut into the meat and I'm, I'm just waiting and can't anticipate it. And I throw it in my mouth. And if you've ever had gristle in your mouth, it's just you chew and you chew, and you chew, and it's to the point where, like, the meat has zero flavor now, but it's just this hunk of stuff, and, and it was so disappointing, and I, and I thought, this is what steak is? This is what the big deal is? And so, for a while, as a kid, I really didn't like steak that much. It wasn't really that big a deal. Some people think, oh, we're getting steak. Well, if that was my first experience, I also remember having my first really good steak, like, really good steak, where I sat down and I picked up the really big steak knife and went to cut it and realized after the first cut, there was no need to even have the knife. Now here was a steak, you could just take your fork and just pull it apart. The difference between the grizzled steak that I experienced the first time and as I would later learn, this impeccable steak that just melted in my mouth when I ate the second time, the steak that redeemed steak in my eyes and really made me think, I actually like steak and I want more steak and I want steak to be a staple of my diet from here going forward. I learned the difference. That steak had been aged. That steak had been taken... And even going back before, when it, when it was just a cow, I mean, that cow was taken by the rancher, and, and it's not just given anything to eat, it's given very special. It feed it on grass. 
And when that cow goes to the butcher, it gets butchered, and they realize this cow, this, this, this cut of meat, this is above the rest. We're going to set this aside. This is going to be premium USC. This is going to be choice. So the butcher does that and sets it aside, and then it goes, and they, they hang it up in the locker, and they age it for 21 days or whatever the amount of time is. The difference between... I, I want to I see what that cow was that I first ate. Like, what did that just despicable thing look like? Just this emaciated... I mean, it's like an 80-year-old cow that they finally decided, oh, I guess we'll send you to the butcher. But the difference between the two states, between one gristled and tough and lacking nourishment, didn't even want to swallow it, and one that had been aged and matured. If you've ever had one of those steaks, you know what I'm talking about. Well, sort of a silly analogy, but being matured, being aged properly, doesn't just matter for your steak. It matters in the church. Look with me in Colossians 1, starting in verse 21. And you, plural, the church, you all, who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death, in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach, if indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, for the sake of the church, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of His body, that is the church, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you. For what purpose? To make the Word of God fully known. The mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to His saints. To them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom, so that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all His energy that He powerfully works within me. Now, there is a lot in that passage. And we're not going to seek to unpack all of that today. But what we see in that passage is Paul laying out for the Colossians and laying out for us this morning a vision for what he considers the purpose of his ministry. Why he's laboring with them. He, he's connecting them with the God they're called to worship. And he's also calling them to the ends for which he pours himself out. Why do I labor so hard? Why do I work so hard to build churches, to plant churches, to see them grow? Well, he tells us. The reason is that he may present every believer, mature in Christ. This morning, we're going to look at that second aspect of our mission statement, that we would be a community of disciples. So, a body making disciples, and last week we looked at who treasure. So, those who worship God. Part of discipleship is the call to worship. It's a Godward call. Well, this morning, we're looking at another part, that we would be a community of disciples who treasure, declare, and mature in the gospel of Jesus Christ. So while there's a Godward call and an outward call, this morning we're looking at the inward call, the call of the body of Christ that as you make disciples, your commitment to making disciples would be a commitment to growing disciples, to maturing disciples, to preparing God's people for the day when they will stand before Christ at the judgment seat. The first thing we see in this text is that maturity is a goal of the gospel. Now, last week, again, we considered the call of the church to worship. And remember, we specifically said worshiping is treasuring, right? So the church is called to worship God. It's called to treasure Him. It's called to find supreme joy in Christ. 
That's the Godward responsibility of the church. To consume our hearts with Christ so that He becomes the fountain of all our joys. Remember the Edwards quote we read. That's exactly what Paul is doing in Colossians 1. We're not going to have time to look back at all of it this morning. But in verse 13 we read, He has delivered us, that is God, has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son, in whom we have redemption and the forgiveness of sins. Now that, that's a snapshot of the Gospel. The snapshot of the Gospel. And then that gets followed in chapter 1. If you turn there, if you look back a page in your Bibles, after that verse... Paul uses that snapshot as a springboard into celebrating and putting forward just a glowing description of who Christ is. What Paul is doing is declaring the good news. This is what God has done for you in Christ. And then, in multiple verses, he works to stir up worship in response. He gives us a picture of Christ's divinity. He lays out for us the nature of His Lordship and His reign over all the universe. The nature of His reconciling work. The reality that the fullness of God dwells in Christ. And He's doing all of that so that He can bring into focus and help us see more clearly the nature of our hope. The hope Paul writes about is a contingent hope. Not everybody gets it. Paul says this hope is contingent upon believers remaining steadfast. It's contingent upon disciples continuing to the end. The power of the Gospel to secure our hope is conditional and dependent upon us continuing in faith. Now, in a very personal way, Paul describes in our passage this morning, once you were alienated. Once. Everyone in this room was alienated. But He has now reconciled you. And then He says, if you continue. He's preparing us for a central point of the letter of Colossians. One of Paul's great pastoral concerns in this letter is this. He wants to make very clear that there is a need for those who have been made alive in Christ to continue in their faith, to remain steadfast to the end. That if Christ has caused you to be born again, if He's made you alive, if this Christ that He describes in Colossians 1, who's indwelt with the fullness of God, if that Christ is in you, you should labor and toil and strain and do all you can to remain in Him. As He puts it in our passage, to mature. Verse 22 describes the remarkable trajectory of the Gospel's work. Those who were alienated have been reconciled. Those who have been reconciled will one day be presented blameless. And all of that is contingent upon verse 23. If, if you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard. I love the detail that Paul uses in verse 22. When he details out what's happening here, and he's, he's casting this vision of, of first the snapshot of the gospel in, in verses 13 to 16, and then in verse 22, really laying in and filling in the details and the texture of it. He doesn't just say, you've been reconciled in the cross. He says specifically, you've been reconciled through Christ's flesh by His death. He wants us to remember and consider what's been broken on the cross. He wants us to keep freshly in our mind that He's just described Christ as the one in which the fullness of God dwells. That that is the individual who makes peace, as He says in verse 19, by the blood of the cross. He wants us to remember that the cross had a cost. And that what was spent there to conquer the enmity of our hearts and draw us into knowledge of God's grace was a real Jesus, a physical body that's broken, blood that was shed, a back that gets, that gets shredded and emaciated. And this is for a specific purpose. In verse 22 he says, He has now reconciled in His body, in his body of flesh by His death, and this is the purpose, in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before Him. 
one goal, not necessarily the only goal, but one goal of the gospel that we see in our text this morning is of Christ being put to death and becoming sin and rising from the grave so that he might purchase people to make them mature. This is how Ephesians, the sister letter to Colossians, describes this. Very common passage, many of you know. Ephesians 5.25 Christ loved the church and He gave Himself up for her so that, here's why, He might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the Word, so that He might present the church to Himself in splendor, without wrinkle, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. Here's the point of all of that. The call to treasure that we talked about last week, the call to to worship, that Godward call of the church in making disciples, to find joy in Jesus that surpasses all the other lesser joys of this world, that hangs together with the call to mature and to grow. It's one of the trajectories of the gospel's purpose. That the gospel wouldn't just save us, but that the gospel will transform us, right? It's not just going to save you, remove hell from your future. It's not just going to present forgiveness of sins. It's going to transform you so that you actually fit in heaven. Not just to create worshipers, but to create worshipers who are changed by what they worship. So that as we consider and pursue the upward call, the Godward call, to treasure and to worship Christ, that hangs together with the inward call, that we would make disciples and mature and grow. And the purpose of that is so that as we pursue the upward, that we would worship and treasure, the inward calls us to reflect what we worship and treasure. Paul's referring here in Colossians and Ephesians to the final judgment. He's celebrating the fact that there's a new status of reconciled, but he's careful to remind us the end goal isn't just that you get forgiveness of sins. The end for which we've been been justified and reconciled is that now having a status of holiness, we would one day actually be holy. Paul wants us to beware that there's going to be a day when you stand before Christ. And you're going to stand before the judgment seat. And he wants you to feel right now in your bones at the deepest levels the hope that the gospel provides for that day. You shouldn't fear that day. There's hope to be found in the nature of the gospel, in the nature of what Christ has done. And we'll see that this morning. But he doesn't want you to just lack mindfulness of the fact that there will be a day. So he lays the reality of the final judgment before us, that we will stand before Christ. And the reason he puts that in front of us is he's trying to motivate us. To motivate us, not just that we would be worshipers, but that we would be worshipers who mature. That we would see the gospel bear fruit in our lives. So, The rest of this morning, seeing now that maturity is one of the goals of the gospel, let's spend time considering what maturity looks like. Well, second, or the first part of unpacking maturity is this. Maturity is growth in Christ. Now, we just said maturity, the maturity of God's people, that's one of the goals of the gospel. So just as the gospel is centered on Christ, so maturity should produce that. The heart of this passage, Paul is wrestling with something that he describes as the mystery hidden for ages and generations. And that, that's a really interesting phrase. He's talking about in these verses something that, that's been just clouded for millennia. There, there's a mystery that's now been made clear. So if you like mysteries, you like watching a, a good mystery movie or reading a mystery novel, well, this is the mystery of all mysteries. Paul, Paul describes what is the unveiling of God's plan of salvation. And it's revealed, he says, not through cryptography. It's not revealed through code breaking. It's revealed 
through the illumination of the Spirit. At the most basic level, it's revealed in the Word of God made fully known. And this is what that makes known. This is what the Word makes known. It makes known the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is, here's what the mystery is, Christ in you. The hope of glory. Now, you ever interact with somebody who's passionate about something? Obviously, you've interacted with someone who's passionate about something. But somebody who's passionate about something, and you, you hear them like, you take, for instance, a car lover. Now, I'm really not that into cars, but, but some people are really into cars, and, and maybe really into particular kinds of cars. I wasn't the kid that had like the posters of the Ferraris and the Lamborghinis on his wall growing up. But there are people who grow up that way. They just grow up thinking, oh, and they, they can tell you about the newest version of the Ferrari that's come out this past year, how it's different from previous years, and they know the horsepower and the torque and, and all these incredible... And they, they've got the poster up, and they know exactly what color of Ferrari is their favorite. And, and maybe, maybe they're kind of a poser, and they don't even own a Ferrari, but they have a Ferrari jacket, right? So they walk around in public with a Ferrari jacket. It, Does that person own a Ferrari? No, <laughs> but they got a jacket. Now, somebody who's passionate about cars, somebody who's passionate about Ferraris, that person would never say, I love Ferraris, but I really have no desire to ever own one. If you took a, a car lover, a Chevy guy perhaps, and you said, hey, I'm going to give you a Corvette. If that guy is really passionate about Corvettes, he's not going to pass on that, right? Absolutely. Give it to me, please. Ladies who love shoes, maybe that's a more helpful analogy. I, I don't really get either of them, but I definitely don't get the shoes. You're going you're gonna to pass on a brand new pair of stilettos? Maybe you, you probably should. They don't look comfortable. Bottom line, when someone's passionate about something, they, they don't just think about it and describe it and put up posters and consider it. They want to have it, right? Well, there's this weird thing out there. In, in really healthy circles, really gospel-oriented, God-glorifying circles of people who talk passionately about the gospel, who love the doctrine of justification by faith, who really, I believe, want to be Christ-centered and gospel-centered, but actually then go on to erode the urgency of of the call to maturity. You've been around those people? They, they kind of frame their sense of being passionate about the gospel with this other sense of, and if you're really concerned about holiness, that's maybe a little bit too man-oriented. If you're really gospel-centered, you can't be talking about things like effort. That's not Christ-centered. Or so they would claim. They would say the great danger of any emphasis on our sanctification and maturity is that it might seem to diminish Christ. It might seem to, to tear away at this sense of being totally forgiven by grace alone. Well, that is analogous to the Ferrari lover saying he loves Ferraris but never wants to own one. It's overly simplistic. Consider this. What makes someone mature in Christ? What does it mean to be mature in Christ? To be mature in Christ is nothing less than to be made like Christ. The word translated mature in verse 28 literally means to be complete and perfect. In other words, those who reach maturity are those who are completely and perfectly sanctified. They're totally holy. As, as Romans 8.29 says, those who God saves, He intends to conform to what? To the image of His Son. That's the language that Paul adopts in Colossians when he talks about being mature. Being mature is being conformed to the image of His Son. So it's completely nonsensical to say, I love the Gospel. I, I love justification by faith. I love the freedom that the gospel entails, but I'm really worried about holiness. I'm really worried that, 
that if we make maturity a serious pursuit of this church, we're going to somehow diminish the gospel. Don't you understand what maturity pursues? Maturity pursues conformity to the image of the one you treasure. That's the reason Paul labors so hard for the maturity of his believers. Because his highest goal, Paul's highest goal, right? He wants to be poured out as a drink offering. He wants to live his life and expend his energies and die for one purpose, that Christ would be made glorious. And so Paul's not double-minded here. He's not saying, I toil and I struggle that the church, that this church that I've planted would be mature. And then when I write this letter, my passion is I want to see Christ glorified. I want to see Christ looking beautiful. I want to see Christ ravishing hearts as the supreme joy. Those are two different things. When Paul says he toils for the maturity and the completion of believers, he's toiling for something that glorifies Christ. So it brings Christ glory. That his disciples, those people who he's called out of darkness, the ones once alienated, the ones at one time at war with him, that Paul says here, Christ now dwells in them. Here's the purpose of it. That they would treasure Jesus. So the ones who now treasure Jesus because He's made them alive, who are now clothed in His righteousness, that have been declared holy in Christ, would also one day be holy. That they would be mature and complete. And so the mystery Paul talks about is the reality of Christ in you. The hope of glory. The fact that Christ is in you because of the Gospel, that you're indwelt, By the Spirit of God, the Spirit of Christ, that's the hope of glory. That because Christ is in you, God will be at work and the church should be at work and Paul will be at work ensuring that you will become mature. That it won't just be Christ in you, it will be the Christ expressed out of you. That you will look and be conformed to the image of Christ. And here's what that means. In the context of this letter. This is Christ, who Paul has just described as being the image of the invisible God. The one who dwells in you is the firstborn of all creation. It's the one by whom all things are created. This Christ, who you're united with by faith and by the work of the Gospel, this Christ is the one in whom all things hold together. This Christ, in whom the fullness of God dwells. Paul's making a point when he uses the same vocabulary. Christ, in whom the fullness of God dwells. This Christ is in you. He dwells in you. The same person indwells God's people. And he indwells God's people for a purpose. That they might mature. And the purpose of maturity being that they would reflect His glory. So here's the implication. Look around the room. Look around the room. Consider the people you're sitting next to. Every believer, in these, these people that you should care about, that we pray for, the members of your care group, the people who serve beside you in different capacities, you see who they really are? These are the people of God. People who have been united and indwelt by the very presence of the God-man, Jesus. And none of the people in this room have been united with Christ so that they can remain like they are now. Christ doesn't indwell us so we stay the same. We've been indwelt by Christ that we might reflect more and more of His beauty and His perfection. That as disciples continue on, they would mature into Christ's likeness. Now that's the ground of our hope for future glory. That the one now glorified, the one now seated at the right hand of God, 
Most High, Jesus Christ, that that same individual dwells in you. The reason discipleship in the church involves the pursuit of maturity is because it complements our pursuit of treasuring Christ. The point of maturity is that our treasuring of Christ would increase. That's what maturity means. You're called to treasure Christ. You're called to worship that God would call the church. That's part of being a disciple. Being made a disciple is the initial worship of Christ. The call to mature is the call to come together as the body, to look inward, to assist each other, to help, to give grace, to speak into each other's lives with the purpose that we would treasure Christ more sufficiently. That's discipleship 101. That those who mature in Christ would reflect more of Him. That they would highlight more of His glory. I love how Sam Storms puts this point. He says this in, in a commentary on, Col- on Colossians. Christ is not simply the reason we can hope for glory, but Christ is Himself that glory. The glory for which we long, the glory for which we have been predestined, the glory that makes all suffering and pain and disappointment in this life unworthy of comparison is the person and presence of Jesus Christ Himself. He is our glory. Being with Him, to know Him, to see Him, to relish Him and rejoice in His beauty. That is the glory for which we hope. Our hope is Christ. Period. So don't ever buy into the mistake that a person is either serious about the Gospel, serious about Christ, or they're in a different category where they're serious about holiness and serious about maturity. That's a false dichotomy, friends. Maturity is a pursuit of becoming more like what we treasure. It's about seeing our union with Christ. The reality that the reigning Savior, the risen Lord, seated at the right hand of God, is in us by the power of His Spirit. And it's seeing that and seeking to have that lived out and accentuated in life. We pursue maturity because we want more of Christ in us. Not because we've forgotten about Christ. And finally, maturity is a community project. So, maturity is one goal of the Gospel. We've seen that this morning. Right? Maturity, by its definition, is the reality that Christ is in us. And maturity is the reality that we will now continue to look more like Christ is in us. But maturity is also something that's not done in isolation. Look at verse 28. Now, Paul's writing this letter. Let's keep in mind. He's writing it. We we sometimes take these, right? And you sit down for devotions or you read them at the table. And you can think, he's writing this letter for me. Or he's writing this letter for my family. He is. He's not not doing that. But his primary audience, his primary purpose is Paul is writing this letter under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit for a community, for a church, for the church, for the body of believers, for every place where believers will come together and gather in the name of Christ and seek to live out and pursue Him. So, in verse 28, with that in mind, listen to the plural things he says. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. Paul calls the church to a task here. Simply proclaim Christ in us, that we would go about in our worshiping together when we gather corporately, in our living together as we maybe scatter and gather together in smaller groups, and when we go out into our lives, that in all of that, we would be proclaiming Christ. That's the hope of our glory. We're proclaiming the fact that Christ is in us. But that proclamation is with a purpose purpose is that we might present everyone mature in Christ. He says at the very end of the passage, it's his toil, it's his struggle. But look at verse 28 again. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone that we may present everyone mature in Christ. Now, you could read that and think maybe Paul's just 
talking about himself, and in this letter, Epaphras is his fellow worker in the gospel. Is that who Paul's referring to? So, maturity is a leadership process. Is that what Paul's saying? Maturity and you know the call of the church. If if the church has three calls, it's got the Godward call and it's treasure and worship. That's everybody. But maturity, that's the project of the leaders. Is that what he says by those words? What context is helpful? Look what he says later. Colossians 3.16. In the same context of talking about teaching, admonishing, the desire to have Christ dwell in us, he says, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another. It's not just the work of leaders or elders or care group leaders to pursue and encourage and promote maturity. It's the work of the body. 3.16 makes unmistakable the fact that the pursuit of maturity is a community endeavor. Good news is that the gospel is all that God has done to save us. That's the good news proper. That's the gospel proper. But He saves us, Paul says in Colossians, so that He can change us. Listen to what Paul describes the gospel doing. Really unique language. In Colossians 1, 5, and 6, he says this, The gospel that has come to you is bearing fruit and growing. Just, it has, just as it has been doing among you since the day you heard it and understood God's grace in all its truth. Paul's saying the gospel that was planted in your hearts at conversion, the gospel, the word of God that, that brought life out of your dead heart, that caused you to be born again, it didn't just... You know, it's not like one of those crash pads where the Spirit comes and puts on the whatever that's what is it, silicone or whatever it is, dock, I don't know. They put it together so you're not going to get burned. The Spirit doesn't come in and just <clears throat> charge you. Oh, heartbeat, created life. Well, my job's done. It's going. The Gospel does that. It creates life in that way. That's the mental image you should have of what the Gospel does through the Spirit. When the Spirit comes and regeneration happens, it's boom, power, life. What was dead has now been infused with vigor. But it doesn't stop there. The gospel planted at conversion, Paul says, grows in us. It bears fruit. Read, it changes people. The fruit is Christ-likeness. The growth is becoming more like Jesus. Discipleship is the process of change, of becoming worshipers, and then becoming more like what we worship. And that only flourishes. That only thrives when those things are pursued in community. When they're pursued in the church. The preaching activity we do on Sunday mornings, it's significant. I mean, the Word, Scripture talks about the power and efficacy of God's Word proclaimed and preached and the fact that He uses preaching and the proclamation of His Word as a means of grace to, to create life and to stir people up towards holiness. But preaching in and of itself will never achieve the goals that Paul describes here without the commitment of the body, of all of us, of all of you, to see what is proclaimed applied. We can hear God's Word declared every Sunday. But if we don't have a commitment and a partnership of everyone that's gathered here to then teach and warn one another from those messages and from other scriptures, the effect of that means of grace is truncated. This toil and struggle that Paul's describing in Colossians here is the definition of biblical fellowship. It's the reason, it's the reason why we talk about care groups so much. You know, now, there's lots of churches that talk about small groups, and there's lots of churches that have a great vision for their small groups. And there's some that don't. 
Now, you're not going to find chapter and verse on care groups in the Bible. But the reason we emphasize them at Providence is because we're trying to set aside a means in a strategic way where we can carefully put together. This is our vision. This is the place where we want to live out the pursuit of maturity. That inward call, this is the place where we're going to come together and we're going to help each other and we're going to teach each other and admonish each other and we're going to pursue Christ with each other. You want to know why we make such a big deal about care groups? Why we're talking about them? Seemingly all the time, right? It's because your pastors love you. Because like Paul, I want to see the Word of God, the Word of Christ, dwelling richly in your souls. I don't stand up here just to, to fill air for 45 minutes. We're proclaiming Christ so that you, as you hear Christ and gather together to spur each other on, will be presented before Christ in full maturity. That you will stand secure in the full hope of the Gospel before Christ one day. Knowing that the Spirit was at work and that growth happened and that you have become to reflect what you worshipped. Listen, there's great danger in thinking you're beyond the need of community assistance and maturity. Now, most people would never say it that way, right? I don't need any help. I mean, most people aren't arrogant enough to really actually articulate that. They would look at the statement and just say, I don't think that. But here's the thing. What you really think about the need for assistance and life together and one another's and people assisting you in the pursuit of maturity. That's expressed in your priorities. Only a fool is so bold to say, I have no need of help according to the means of grace that God has prescribed in Scripture. And I can put myself in here too. We might not say that, but do we act like that? Our lives are busy. And I think it, it's not an exaggeration. Sometimes, sometimes we make a big deal out about, we live in the hardest time. You know, There's challenges that we have that believers didn't have. That's most of the time just a bunch of hooey. It's always been hard. And in some ways, it's been a lot harder in other places. But every context has its challenges. You want to know a great challenge of the context of life as a Christian in America, in suburbia, it's not at this point that you're going to be imprisoned and possibly put to death for your faith. That's not a challenge that, that we wake, we lie awake at night feeling anxious over, is it? You want to know one of the challenges that we face in suburbia, in the West, for our faith? We have limitless opportunities. We have limitless opportunities at our disposal. And tons of them are great things. We live in a way foreign to previous generations. Even 80 years ago, unless you were really wealthy, you didn't have a car. You were limited by how far you could go on your feet if you wanted to go do an activity. And that meant your time was limited because you couldn't get there very fast. Even if something was one mile away. If you're walking that one mile, even if you're going at a pretty good clip, well, that's going to be about 13, 15 minutes out of your day just to get there, another 15 minutes to get back, just to go somewhere a mile away. It limits, your it limits what you can do. It limits your schedules. It limits what your week can look like. We don't have that. There's opportunities in front of us every week. What are we going to do? Where are we going to go? How are we going to invest our time? And here's the thing. A lot of them are really good things. A lot of them are great options. There's plenty of bad ones too, right? A lot of them are great things to expend your time doing. But are they the best thing? 
what wins out on our calendars. What wins out on the calendar of the night when it's care group. That's an expression of whether you really believe your maturity in Christ requires an intentional context of community. Here's what I'm not saying. I'm not saying your character is perfect. <laughs> None of them are. I'm not saying your character leader is perfect. <laughs> Most of us are about as clueless as you. <laughs> All I'm saying is that God is perfect. And He knows what He's doing. And He knows what He's doing when He commands us to gather together in contexts that are set aside for fellowship. Listen. Listen to this in Hebrews 3. Same concern in a lot of ways of Colossians, but said a little more edge. Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling... Consider Jesus. That's maybe the great banner line of maturity. Consider Jesus. Consider Jesus. That's a sweet phrase. That's a, that's a phrase to put away. He is the apostle and high priest of our confession. Christ is faithful over God's house as a son. He's being compared this passage to Moses. Moses did some good stuff. But Moses isn't the son of the house. It's not his inheritance. Christ cares for the house in a unique way because he's purchased you. And we are his house. If conditional, indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting in our hope. The call to consider Jesus so that as Colossians 4.12 says, you may stand mature and fully assured in all the will of God. That's the call of Hebrews and the call of Colossians and the call all over the New Testament when it calls the church not just to be worshipers, but to gather together in community to assist each other into being changed into the likeness of what they worship. And here's the key. Hebrews reminds us, as we'll see in a second, of the tendency of our hearts to drift. There's two themes you see in Hebrews. One is, consider Jesus. Consider Jesus. And the other one is the flip side of it. Don't drift. Don't drift. It's a pastor's expression of concern knowing that every human heart, that no human heart, stands neutral. They're always either moving towards God or they're moving away from Him. And our hope, it says in Hebrews, and it says in Colossians, and it says in Ephesians, all over Scripture, our hope in Christ is contingent upon our holding fast. And the nature of our hearts is that we don't see where we're vulnerable. I had a friend in college. He seemed like the all-American guy. Everything going intelligent, popular, great parents, great family. His, his father is a seminary professor, godly seminary, not like just a seminary professor, but a godly, godly seminary professor. Knew the gospel, knew the Lord. In college, you would have said, this guy's on the right path. He's going the right way. He's going to do well. He's now cut off from community. He graduated and went out into the world and was untethered from fellowship. He was untethered from the body. He's not just an unbeliever. He'd be a guy that an unbeliever would look at and say, you are a mess. Your parents have almost totally disowned you because your life is so broken by addictions to alcohol and drugs. And this is a kid that I, you would have never expected that from. Intelligent. He, he knows better. He, he should have known better. He had everything laid out in front of him. Why does that happen? How does that happen? Well, his heart's not neutral. His heart is either going towards Jesus or it's drifting away from Jesus. And his heart, like all of our hearts has a very limited perspective. 
and needs the body of Christ to help and assist and come together and to cast light on situations. He needed fellowship. He needed care. He needed community. I think of that phrase, there but for the grace of God go I, in a different way now. We were like the same person in college. Listen to how Hebrews 3 ends at the end of that chapter. So it says, consider Jesus. He cares for God's household as a son. And then it says this, take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. That's heavy, right? And here's the pastoral application the author of Hebrews makes. In light of that, in light of the nature of your hearts to fall away and drift from the living God, exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of your sin. For we, as a community, have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. You see and feel the danger and the need and the wisdom of Paul. When Paul and Epaphras say, we toil and we struggle. When they say, and especially Epaphras, both of them in, in numerous points in the letter say, we pray hard for you. When Paul says in this passage, in the heart of it, I endure sufferings. I, I bear afflictions. I, I have sufferings in my flesh that I rejoice in for your sake. He's saying that because in view of the church achieving maturity, it's worth it. That those made alive by the gospel would bear fruit and grow in the gospel. That's, that's worth Paul saying, I'll give up my life I know here. I'll move. I'll give up a career. I'll, I'll work as a tent maker every once in a while. I'll prioritize my schedule. Sometimes say no to really good things so that I can toil and strive for you and that you can do the same for me. I want to see the gospel bear fruit and grow. I want us to comprehend together our ongoing need of grace and prayer and power and community. And I want to pursue it so that we can stand before the one that they treasure with unshakable hope on the last day. Our future glory will be realized when we reach maturity. When our character matches that of Christ, we're going to stand before the judgment seat and there's going to be this incredible glorification that happens. And God finishes this process, and it's going to be remarkable. And that's the pursuit and the end goal of discipleship. Discipleship is about calling and encouraging and exhorting and rebuking and comforting and teaching and praying and serving and caring for one another that we might mature in Christ. Colossians 1.9 So now, from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of His will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to Him, bearing fruit in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God. That's maturity. That's what we're called to as a church, corporately. And so we're called to as a church, relationally.